Our Father, as we come in the name of Christ, the one who was born 2,000 years ago in the little town of Bethlehem, and we even sing that song, and of course we don't really know what Bethlehem was like in those days, but certainly we're grateful that Christ was born for us that day. And Father, we are blessed by the fact that we live in a society where Christmas is a holiday. Maybe for many it's not a holiday to really honor Christ, but at least we have that option and, and that privilege, and so we choose to honor you and to give you thanks for the coming of Emmanuel. Lord, I pray that you will bless our lives now, be with each family during this Christmas season, and pray that your name will truly be exalted in every home. Now, Father, we pray for your special blessing this morning. We ask that your Spirit will guide our thoughts and direct our thinking as we study from this passage in Christ's name. Amen. You should have uh, the last part of page 77, and uh, I got 78 put together, but only half a page. Well, as far as I got, but it'll cover everything we're going to cover today. So if anyone doesn't have page 78, uh, Gorman has copies that he can give to you. If you'll turn to Genesis chapter 49, Genesis 49, we'll begin with just the first two verses. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what shall befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to your father Israel. We spent a couple of Sundays before this uh, studying the 48th chapter of Genesis and the events there involving Joseph and his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, are immediately preceding uh, what we have studied or what we are beginning to read here in the 49th chapter. So the time frame between chapters 48 and 49 is probably not more than a couple, three days at the, at the most. Jacob has sent a messenger or several messengers out to find his sons and to tell them to gather to his tent because he wants to give this final blessing and this word of prophecy. Now, we don't know how far afield his sons were. How far out were they keeping their flocks there in the land of Goshen? In fact, if one or more of his sons had actually been selected by Pharaoh to head up the, uh, the herds of Egypt, they may have been a couple of days distant from uh, the tent, and therefore it may have taken two or three days at least for them to gather. We, we don't know those things, but you remember back earlier when Joseph was introducing or told of his brothers to Pharaoh, Pharaoh said, well, if there's any of them that are good administrators, I'd like to have them be responsible for the flocks of the government. And the scripture doesn't say whether that happened, but we can assume that possibly that did. Whatever the case was, whatever the time frame, we know that Joseph is already there, Ephraim and Manasseh are already there, and they will remain there because they are going to be in on this special time of blessing and prophecy. I think we need to try to picture this scene. We're talking about a Bedouin tent. We're talking about a black tent. They, were, they made these tents out of black goat hair. 
And uh, they were large enough, of course, to accommodate uh, you know, several dozen people if necessary. <laughs> and, and Jacob is abed. And to him will gather these sons. And I believe that they will, they will gather around him as he's there in his bed in a semicircle around his bed as they will receive his blessing. And most certainly they are either standing or possibly kneeling uh, there so they could be closer to his eye level. Of course, he couldn't see very well, but uh, to his eye level as they gathered. And most likely they gathered in this semicircle according to the birth order with the eldest son, Reuben, being on Jacob's right hand and all the way around the circle to the youngest son, Benjamin, being on Jacob's left hand. That would have been the normal way of gathering. The scripture doesn't say that specifically, but from what we have studied so far, we can infer that that is probably what happened. What's in the mind of these young men? I mean, they have been anticipating their father's death now probably for several months. He has become quite aged and feeble, uh, almost blind because of probable cataracts. And uh, certainly they gather with, with a measure of reverence and with a great deal of anticipation because what is this blessing going to be? That was a very important thing. You know, today, if, if we walked into our father's presence, he was about to die, and he were to say a few words to us, we'd say, well, that's really nice. We are grateful we have this good relationship. But we wouldn't consider that whatever he said was probably going to be anything of a long-lasting or accurate statement relative to our future. But that wasn't the same for these people. As Abraham was a great patriarch, and Isaac was a great patriarch, and now Joseph came in that same train, these sons knew that whatever their father said was to be taken very, very seriously. And so as they gathered, they did so with great anticipation. Now we have to also remember, as Jacob makes this blessing prophecy, that he is not just shooting in the dark here. Jacob has lived with these sons all of his life, all of their lives, I should say. Joseph, of course, was the only one who was separated and has lived separate from Jacob since Joseph was 17. Because even now in Egypt, Joseph still lived up in Memphis, or I should say south in Memphis, whereas his father lived out in Goshen, or the land of Ramses. But the other sons lived with or near jo Jacob throughout their lives. They're always there. Remember when the message went for them to come to, down to Egypt, they were there and they all came and, and they went back to be with their father and they were all living in close proximity. So Jacob was very well aware of the character of his sons. He understood them. He, he saw their foibles and their strengths, their weaknesses. And so all of that is part of, of his blessing prophecy here. So familiarity with his sons does play a role in this. But, of course, the most important role is the role played by God himself. There is no way an accurate prophecy can be made without the empowering of the Spirit of the living God. 100% accuracy is the measure of a biblical prophet. 99% accuracy is not sufficient with God's prophets. Uh, so 100% accuracy is necessary. And for Jacob to give these prophecies, which do work out 100% in the lives of these 12 men, implies, of course, directly 
God's divine intervention, his inspiration. It's very important for us, I think, to note that the, the introductory phrase or statement that Jacob makes in verse 2, he says, Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to, your, to Israel, your father. Now, first of all, there is, of course, the typical Hebrew parallelism there, where the first phrase is more or less repeated in the second phrase, in, in just different words. But there is definite, uh, I think, specific meaning that we need to look at briefly here in this passage. First of all, if you were to define the, the name that he uses for himself, what we have is, Gather and hear, O sons of the deceiver, and listen to the prince, your father. And I think that's a very interesting way of expressing something about himself here. First of all, I think I have on your outline these four words that are, I think are key to this. He begins by saying, hear. Hear this. The word is Shema, which in the Hebrew is a very important uh, term. In fact, to the Hebrews, the Shema is, of course, the Deuteronomy passage which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. This is the Shema. Well, uh, this is the word that is used here, Shema. Literally, it means understand and obey. It doesn't just mean, do you hear what's being said? Kind of like, does it go in your ear? Does it register? It means understand what is being said and let it impact your life. It's supposed to make a change in your life. His words were to go beyond the eardrum. They were to enter to the heart of these men. They were to be comprehended and then acted upon wherever action was required. And as I mentioned, he uses the name Jacob. He says, Jacob is speaking, the supplanter. Why does he say this? Well, I, I think in part he is on his deathbed admitting to his sons that he has been a man of flesh. He's had feet of clay, that he has been a deceiver. Not that all of his life is filled with deceit by any means, but he is, I think, recognizing his failure. He is acknowledging his sin. And he wants his sons to know that although he has not always been the example he should be, he yet needs to be heard. Because, well, I emphasize that other one in a minute here. But he needs to be heard. But then he contrasts the fact that he calls himself, admits to his deception, to his being a deceiver, a supplanter, he says, Israel, your father. Listen to Israel, your father. Prince with God is the meaning of the word Israel or the name Israel. And you remember, because of his faith and because of God's declaration, when he met God uh, there in one of the several uh, theophanies that he experienced in his life, God said, your name is no longer Jacob, it is Israel. And, and that, of course, is referring to who he was in the chronology of God's plan. He still, of course, in many ways was Jacob. He was to be heard as the, as the divinely appointed head of the clan as God's spokesman. And to me, as I, as I thought about this, Jacob, Israel, Jacob, Israel, Jacob, Israel, Jacob, Israel. 
you find that his name is repeated like that in the passages we have studied. Sometimes he's called Israel, sometimes he's called Jacob. And, and as I thought about that, it reminded me of the passages in the New Testament that talk about true believers being individuals who have been given a new man, a new self, a new being inside, but we still kind of drag the old man around with us. And I was thinking about that, as I was thinking about that, I was reminded of passage in Ephesians. I'd like to turn to it for a moment. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 17. Ephesians 4, 17. This I say therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now it sounds like from that that we could just say, well, as soon as we come to know the Lord, the old self's gone, never have to worry about it anymore, we are a new self. But we realize in practice that it just doesn't work that way. Paul tells us in Romans 7 that that which I would do, I don't, and that which I wouldn't, I do. There's a war going on within us, a war going on with the old, between the old man and the new man, between the old life and the new life, the old self and the new self. And the, the new self wants to serve God and wants to walk in the way of God, but the flesh is always saying, pulling towards the world. And we all have that inner struggle. And, and to deny it, I think, is, is to deny reality, because that's just the way it is. And the longer we walk with the Lord, of course, the more we give, hopefully, give the reins of our life to the Spirit of God working through our new man. And the more we, quote, crucify, if you will, the old man. But as you've often heard, uh, probably, as I have anyway, the, the crucified old man keeps coming down off the cross and getting in our way. And, and that's why... In, in Romans 8, Paul tells us that the whole creation groans. We're just looking forward to the redemption of the sons of God because we are not yet fully redeemed in our spirits, yes. But the new bodies that we're going to be given when we, uh, when we get to be with the Lord will also experience the physical redemption then that is granted to us. In the meantime, we drag around these old bodies, not only the physical one that keeps getting sick and having problems, but uh, that, that uh, part of our flesh that tempts, tempts us to violate the principles of God. And so in some ways, I think that's what Jacob's talking about here. I am Jacob the deceiver, but I am also Israel the prince. And these two are in one. These two are in one person. Is that the picture that we experience amongst ourselves? I mean, if we're really honest with ourselves, 
I, I realize there are some groups that try to say they don't sin anymore. Once they become Christians, they may make, quote, mistakes, but they don't really sin. Well, I have a hard time finding a difference between a mistake and a sin. Anything that's a dis disobedient act is, is sin. Anything that's not in accordance with the divine principles and the working of the Spirit of God and the clear teaching of the Word is sin. In fact, the Scripture teaches us that him who knows what is right to do and doesn't do it, to him it's sin. Some people call that the sin of omission. Well, whatever we call it, uh, it's, it's clear. And I think the more honest we are before God, and we come before him just as he spoke of the publican that came in there and beat his breast and said, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner, as opposed to the Pharisee who stood there and said, I'm glad I'm not like that dirty old man over there. You know, I do this and that and all these good things. The one went away justified and the other didn't. And, and one of the big problems we have within Christianity sometimes is spiritual arrogance. And that's the worst kind of arrogance there is. <laughs> uh, Jesus had the worst things to say about the Pharisees. He was much kinder to the prostitutes and the crooks and everybody else uh, than he was to the Pharisees. They were the whited sepulchers. And so we need to be sure as we look at our own lives that we're honest before God and uh, willing to admit that we fail. Then he goes on to say, your father, hear your father. Without him, they wouldn't be here. They wouldn't have been there. I mean, they owed their very life to him. And as he if they were honest, they had to admit they had feet of clay too. They had to admit that within them was the possibility, and we even have to include Joseph in this, even though it's hard to find this in his life, at least after he, he got down into Egypt. In every one of these boys was the possibility of being a prince and being a deceiver. And the strange thing of it is you can be both in the same day, in the same hour. It's a war. It's a struggle. And that's why prayer is such an important key, because the more we pray and the more we study God's Word, the less hold the old self has and the stronger becomes the new life, because we're feeding it. That's why as Christians it's very, very sad if we neglect prayer and if we neglect the Word of God, because what we're doing is giving strength to the old man and weakening the new man. And we need to be sure that that isn't happening. That's one of the reasons why we see so much variation within the church, between men and women who seem to really, quote, have it together, and those who don't. And I'm not talking about coordinating their clothes or something, but in, in their lifestyle. Quite often, that is one of the reasons. These boys, like it or not, were the product of Jacob's genotype. They were the product of his teaching. They were the product of his example, good or ill. And as a result, they would not be terribly different from him. Whatever his failures, though, however he had not lived up to what he should have done, he was the political and spiritual head of the clan. And what he had now to say was to be heard and understood as the truth. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. Reuben, you are my firstborn my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water, you shall not have the preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. He turned to 
the man on his right hand, his eldest son, Reuben. I think it's important for us to picture this correctly now. This is not Jacob turning to all these young men. These are not young men. Reuben was probably 9 to 80. And Benjamin, the youngest, was probably 65. So we're, we're talking about what today would be all retired veterans, <laughs> you know. Uh, uh, but, of course, they weren't then. Uh, they still had the greater vigor at that age than, than most of us do or will have at that point in life. Because, after all, we're looking at Jacob. He's living to 147. Joseph will live to 110. How old some of the other uh, men lived, we don't know. Because Joseph, in his final words, it says he spoke to his brothers. Joseph spoke to his brothers and said, do this and that, and then he died. So apparently some of his brothers outlived him. And whether some of them were his older brothers or all of them were younger brothers, we don't know. But uh, they all lived apparently to a fairly significant age. And so although they're 65 to 80 or so in, in range, uh, they're, they're not uh, on Medicare. Arranged in birth order, probably kneeling just to Jacob's right hand, is Reuben. Now remember... The scripture tells us that Jacob's eyes were very, very dim so that he really couldn't see. So all he could probably see is a faint outline of his son. So when he spoke the name Reuben, Reuben, I believe, responded so that Jacob would be able to clearly identify where he was as he began to speak to him. Remember, they're in a black camel's hair tent, or goat's hair, and probably the only light are flickering oil lamps. Now, even in the daytime, uh, these, these tents, were, they weren't opaque, but they weren't very translucent. And so the light filtering in, uh, unless the flap were open, would not be a, a great amount. So they would need to be interior light, most likely, as this event took place. I think as he called the name of each son, they probably responded audibly, Here I am, Father, before he gave his prophecy concerning them. Ever since his encounter with God at Bethel, 90 years before, Jacob had been God's man. However imperfect he had been since that encounter, and he had been imperfect in many ways since that encounter, he was God's prophet. He was God's man of the hour. I, I think it's really important for us to, to re recognize that God will accomplish his purpose. God is sovereign, and God will accomplish his purpose. And if he has to use an imperfect vessel, he will. Well, of course, if he uses any of us, he's using imperfect vessels, right? The only perfect one has been Christ himself. Scripture says there is none righteous, no, not one. And you know, that's quoted in the New as well as the Old Testament. And it, it's referring to the fact that in our flesh, we cannot do righteous things. Righteousness can only be performed by God through us, but not of our own initiative. God's words that he will speak through Jacob here will now give a broad line or a broad scope of the history of Israel over the next two millennia. And so as we study through this 49th chapter, you're, you're getting a picture of what's going to happen to the nation of Israel in the next 2,000 years. He began with probably the hardest prophecy for him to give. Reuben, I think, was the most pathetic 
of Jacob's sons. He had forfeited the privilege of the privileges that went along with being the firstborn. But nevertheless, he was Jacob's firstborn. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't deny the chronology. He was the oldest son. But because of his actions, of course, he had forfeited, forfeited the privileges that went with that. He was supposed to have been, and that's what this passage is saying when it says, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. This was what he was supposed to have been. He was supposed to be an example of Jacob's power to reproduce, of Jacob's power to develop a tribe of strong men. I think, though, as we look at the words there, the words might and strength, that they don't just refer to physical strength. They refer also to social, moral, economic, and spiritual strength. So when he says, when, when he refers to my might and my strength, he's talking about the overall picture, not just that maybe Reuben had big muscles or something, but that he was supposed to be the man to take over the clan. You know very clearly, I think, from Scripture that a woman who brought forth a son to her husband was given great honor because she had done this honor to her husband. So in the same way, a father's honor was increased when he produced a son who exhibited strength of character as well as strength of body. A son of whom he could be proud, to whom he knew he could turn over the clan, the leadership, without fear of what would happen in the future. Reuben was supposed to have been preeminent in dignity and power. He was supposed to receive the mantle of clan leadership. But there's an interesting word here. The word preeminent, which is used in this passage, all has another meaning. The Hebrew word also means bowstring. He was to be the bowstring of the, of the clan. We might think, eh, what's that mean? Well, just think about it. One of the major weapons of war in those days and of hunting and everything else was the bow. The bow goes way back in history. And uh, they had the bow and they knew how to use the bow. And you and I very well know, even if we've never shot a bow, that a bow's no good without a string. Oh, you might go over it and bap somebody with it, on the head with it, but you're not going to be able to bring down game or, or kill someone at a distance unless you have a bowstring. So the bowstring is absolutely essential for the strength of the weapon. The power of the weapon is in the bowstring. Without the bowstring, it's useless. And a clan without an effective leader is helpless. And I think that's what's being implied here. If Reuben were to be given the position of authority and the mantle of clan leadership, the clan would be left helpless because the bowstring would be gone. There would be no one with strength of character to, to lead the clan. Through the years of growing up, it should have been foremost in his mind that his purpose was to develop leadership that he had to become the kind of a person who could carry this clan with his own strength and by the mind that the Lord had given to him. And he should have been a man of God so that he could know the mind of the Lord as he led the family. 
He should have given to the clan a sense of security, of power, thinking, ah, oh, well, if Jacob dies, it's okay. Not that they want him to die. But Reuben will take over, and Reuben is a man in whom we can trust. But Jacob says something else about him. <coughs> Reuben possessed no leadership qualities. Rather than being skilled, wise, even-handed, controlled, which are qualities necessary for good leadership, Jacob says that Reuben is uncontrolled, he is turbulent, he's unstable. And then he goes on to say, just how unstable is he? He says he is uncontrolled. Now, the, the Hebrew word there literally can be in, translated as wanton and reckless. He is wanton and reckless. Those are not real good words you want to attach to the character of somebody that you want to lead you. Oh, good, our leader is wanton and reckless. <laughs> I feel real secure in that. Now, if you're a band of brigands, that might be fine. <laughs> Because you all think that way. But if, if you're a clan, you want to survive in peace, you've got women and children, you, you don't want that kind of leadership. But just how uncontrolled, he uses a beautiful picture. He says, as uncontrolled, unstable as water. Now, you and I, I think, are pretty well familiar with water. Water is controlled by two forces, gravity and the container it's in, or you know, whatever it's flowing over. It's controlled by outside forces completely. There is nothing inside the water that controls it. It just goes wherever it's allowed to go. You know, if you take a glass of water and, and you tip it up and dump it on the floor, it doesn't come out and just sit there in a, in a glass shape on the floor, right? It just goes splat everywhere. And it goes as far as it can go. And, and, and that is, of course, what he is saying here about Reuben. He is a man with no self-control. Water has no self-control, nothing within it that guides its, its course. It's guided completely by the outside. It flows downhill wherever that leads. And within the shape of whatever valley it's flowing through, it conforms to the outside environment. It's not controlled from within. And that's what he's saying about Reuben. Reuben is an unself-controlled person. He, control, he, he conforms to the environment. And we've seen this as we've looked at him down through the time. He just kind of is wishy-washy. He, he didn't seem to have any strength of character within himself. Now, if you are at all familiar with the Holy Land, uh, you probably would be able to picture what was in Jacob's mind. Because particularly where Jacob lived, he spent quite a bit of his time down in the Negev. But, but the, all of the Holy Land, for, much of the Holy Land, let me say, is subject to what we call flash floods. And there are numerous uh, wadis. They're called wadis over there. We would call them arroyos or little canyons. And, and a flash flood, of course, the water just comes pell-mell down through the canyon, and it just sweeps around according to the shape of the canyon, and it just overwashes everything as it comes. And, and this picture of uncontrolled boiling water, boiling, roiling maybe I should say, uh, water roaring down a canyon after a flash flood is probably what he has in his mind. Reuben's just like that. No control, no character, no, no inner power of himself. The same word for uncontrolled is used in another passage, and I just thought I'd look at it. For, just, I'll just read it here as an illustration. In uh, Zephaniah 
chapter 3, verse 4, where God is speaking about the, the city of Jerusalem as it's living in rebellion against God. And the Lord says, her prophets, the prophets of God, supposedly of God, the prophets of Jerusalem actually, are reckless. They're living wantonly. They're uncontrolled. They're unstable. Treacherous men and her priests have profaned the sanctuary. They've done violence to the law. So Jacob, uh, Reuben fits within that kind of a context. A man who you wouldn't dare give leadership authority to. Reuben, through the many years of growing up, apparently had paid no attention to the fact that he was, as the eldest, supposed to inherit the double portion and the mantle of authority. He didn't try to become a man of dignity, a man of wisdom, a man of spiritual strength and character. Lacking wisdom and faith and stability, to me he became an Old Testament example of what James speaks of in the first chapter of James. This is a passage that I'm sure we turn to often, especially that fifth verse in James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Reuben was unstable in all his ways, tossed by the wind, as it were, like the surf. And so he becomes to us an example of what we do not want to be as we follow the Lord. Now, Jacob makes a specific point of the primary example of his instability. And I've noted there the passages, and let's just uh, follow them along. It gives us a picture here. Uh, Genesis 35:22 tells us the incident. Genesis 35:22. And it came about while Israel was dwelling in, the land, in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Then if we turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 5, it tells us the result of that. 1 Chronicles 5.1 Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, parentheses, for he was the firstborn. But because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. That action was the specific action, which was, of course, just an outgrowth of his character of who he was, that caused him to lose the birthright, to forfeit the birthright. And then back in Deuteronomy, chapter 27. God would later spell out what was true then, of course, at the time of Reuben, just as it would be true as God gave it to Israel, and as they are now uh, giving the famous blessings and curses there at the little saddle there between Mounts Ebal and, and Gerizim. Cursed is he who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's skirt, and all the people shall say, Amen.
Reuben was a man who cared not about his father's dignity, let alone his own dignity, and he followed his desires, his wanton recklessness in committing incest with his father's wife. This was just the tip of the iceberg, though. This isn't the only thing. Reuben had never exhibited leadership amongst the brothers. He had never taken responsibility for their actions. Remember when Simeon and Levi decided that they were going to go butcher the town of Shechem? Was Reuben there to say, now, wait a minute, guys. This isn't how we should handle this thing. Let's go talk to Dad about it. No. Reuben didn't do anything. He didn't stop him, and he didn't join him. Just kind of blah, you know. And then later on, when... When the brothers decided, boy, we're going to get this guy Joseph and we're going to kill him, Reuben kind of just half-baked dealt with the thing. Let's just throw him in a pit here. Let's don't kill him. He's our brother. And he was going to later come in and sneak him out. Well, you know, it didn't all. Rather than standing up and saying, I am the firstborn, this is what's going to happen. He just let it happen and hoped for the best. And then remember when the trips were made to Egypt? Was it Reuben who was brilliantly leading these brothers down there? Was Reuben who was the chief spokesman? No, it was Judah. Judah emerged as the leader, and, and Reuben just kind of sat back sucking his thumb, apparently, while all this was happening. Reuben was not God's man for the leadership of the clan. Now, I think it's important for us to note that Jacob in and of himself did not declare Reuben unable to receive the, the birthright. It was God's doing because in the 21st chapter of Deuteronomy, we find a statement that would have prohibited Jacob from doing what he has just done. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, reading in verse 15, it sounds like a written specifically for Jacob. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him sons. If the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then it shall be in the day he wills what he, what he has to his sons. He cannot make the son of the loved the firstborn before the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength. To him belongs the right of the firstborn. That passage would deny everything that Jacob has just done. But God, you see, has superseded. God is the one who has said Reuben is not to inherit. These are, these are prophetic words coming out of the mouth of Jacob. It is God who is speaking through Jacob here and laying out the truth. God had transferred the double portion from Reuben to Joseph because God knew the hearts of these men and God knew the future. And therefore, God made the decision. You have to remember that the writing of Deuteronomy here, these were God's words to God's people to instruct them in what they were to do. But God is able to supersede in any situation where he needs to. And of course, these words hadn't yet been delivered. Uh, to, to the nation. Men cannot know the future. Men cannot know in, into the hearts of others as God can. So God later gave the law of the firstborn to prohibit injustice based on prejudice. It's interesting to note that 
although God gave the double portion of the firstborn to the tribe of Joseph, he would eventually give political leadership to the tribe of Judah. And when we get down to Judah, which we'll be doing next year in January when we start our uh, class up again, when we, when we talk about Judah, we're going to see how the prophecy made it very clear that that tribe would receive the political leadership. So the preeminence would be divided, ultimately, between Judah and Joseph, between those tribes. And as time would pass, as I mentioned to you before, Ephraim and Manasseh would become together the largest tribe for a period of time. And they would occupy a very large section in the northern part of Israel. And of course, Manasseh also had some territory on the other side of the Jordan. But Judah in the south would have the uh, political reign. David was of the tribe of Judah. And Solomon was of the tribe of Judah. And Rehoboam was of the tribe of Judah. And as you go down through all of those kings who were ancestors, not ancestors, descendants, of uh, David, these were all of the tribe of Judah. But the northern kingdom would be primarily dominated by Ephraim. And as I mentioned to you before, they'd even refer to the northern kingdom often in scripture as Ephraim. Let's, let me just read the next uh, couple of verses. We won't get into it because our time is up. But you can probably ponder this because what he has to say about these two brothers is very, very interesting. Uh, verses 5 through 7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob, and scatter them in Israel. And what is interesting is how specifically that would be fulfilled concerning those two tribes. And we'll look at that on the 8th. <laughs>